let us let's read and pray. First John five eighteen, it reads, "We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him." We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, and His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God, we come tonight, and we want clarity. So I pray that you would open my mouth to speak your truth with clarity and open to all of our minds and hearts so that your truth can come in with clarity. God, we want to know you intimately lest we fall in love with idolatry. So protect hearts, I pray. And Father, there are hearts bowing down to temporary, man-made, false hopes and joys called idols. And I pray you save them from such ruin. You be our God. You be our passion. Be our supreme, premier treasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our 13th and final message in 1 John. 13. Uh, when we opened First John a long time ago as a way of breaking from Genesis, I had the intention of doing this quickly. You know, I was like, oh, we'll pick out some of the best verses and get the main idea of the book, and then we'll go back to Genesis. That happened. Thirteen messages later, here we are finally finishing, and I think it's been a good thing. Um, I have found my heart utterly yearning for the words of this book. They, they have spoken truth. And it's not been easy truth. John is a very hard-line writer. We call him the disciple whom Jesus loved, the apostle of love. It's like things we call him. We always think about love when we think of John. But man, John, John was a guy of love, and he loved people so much, he told them things that were very, very, very hard to take in. And that's some of the messages that we've had to listen to. The whole point of John's writing has been, he wants you, the hearer, to know with assurance and confidence, without a doubt, that you are a possessor of eternal life. That's been his goal. And so that's why we've called this 13-week series Assurance. The whole aim is, do you have assurance that you have eternal life? Because the most dangerous thing you can do is assume that you're a Christian. Is, oh yeah, I did the sinner's prayer. I, I agree with everything Brandon says. I've read a Bible. I said that one prayer one time. I have these great thoughts and love for Jesus. I'm a Christian. And that is the prevailing qualification of a Christian in our American church. And John wants boldly to say, as we've heard, that that is not what guarantees eternal life. You can assume, but he wants assurance so that there's no doubt whatsoever. So when we looked at the book, um, some things we look at and we, we realize I clearly fall short, clearly fall short 
I am not someone that always sacrificially and generously gives to my brother who has need. Sometimes I'm selfish and I, I fail in that regard. So when we see that and we're failing, we don't have to think like, crap, I'm not a Christian. John's whole message is, look, you all may be Christians, but I'm aiming at the few who want assurance in their salvation. They want that joy that springs from having no shadow of a doubt. The rest of you, I mean, who's to judge but God? We just have to say, we don't have 100% assurance of your salvation. And I think America has cheapened the gospel to the point that anybody, anybody can be saved, but anybody who walks forward to the harvest crusade is saved. No way. There are conditions for assurance. And those two conditions, you 13 week in a rowers know for sure by now what those two conditions are. Love Jesus, love others. If you do those two things, you have assurance of eternal life. Not that my loving Jesus and loving others earns me salvation. Rather, my loving Jesus and loving others confirms my salvation. It's the outworking of the fact that I have indeed been saved. So those conditions come as assurance. Um, so along the lines of saying that assumption is very dangerous, we've looked often at the metaphor. Um, assure, assumption is like grabbing any old backpack and jumping out of an airplane assuming that it's a parachute properly packed inside of it. Just, just grabbing it and going. Total assumption. That is dangerous. That is, it's going to really suck when you open the backpack and your biology book comes out. <laughs> Oops, I grabbed the wrong pack. So, John wants to make sure that we are grabbing firm hold of true salvation so that we are secure and safe in Jesus. So that's been the whole goal. And now we come to the conclusion of the book. In some ways, it's a little bit of a climax, um, but in some ways it's not. It kind of depends on how you look at it. John concludes tonight by saying, verse 21, that's going to be our verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Seemingly completely unrelated to the whole passage. He talks about knowing that Jesus came to reveal that God is the true God. He, eternal life is in Him. And all of a sudden, little children, yes, yes. Keep yourselves from idols. Period. Close book. What? What? <laughs> Can you explain that a little bit? He just closes it like that. I think that John uses this as his final message because what he wants to communicate is that we have assurance of eternal life if we love God and love others by keeping ourselves away from idols. How that all connects, I'll show you in just a second. So what I want to do is look at what is idolatry in the first place, so we can identify if we have idols in our hearts, and then why do idols keep us from loving God and others, and consequently, if an idol does keep me from loving God and others, then it therefore keeps me from having assurance of eternal life and leaves me in the assumption and wondering of if I'm even a Christian. So it's going to be important to identify them and then to, we're finally going to look at how do you, how do you extract the root how do you extract and root out an idol from your life? So, let me just give you like the, the preview right now. Who said yay? Idolatry 
does in fact limit your love for God and others. Idolatry limits your love. And if it limits your love for those conditions of eternal life, then it therefore limits your assurance of eternal life. Make sense? If loving God and others is the condition of assurance for eternal life, and idolatry limits my needing those conditions, then idolatry also limits my possessing assurance of eternal life. Because I'm not meeting the conditions of it. Idolatry will suck the life out of your Christianity. It will suck the love out of your heart for God and others. So, let's identify idolatry now. What is idolatry? Well, idolatry in the Old Testament is for, not only is it clearly forbidden, but it's severely forbidden. Ten Commandments. You know what the first two of the Ten Commandments say? Don't have idols. God says that in two commandments. And then he goes on with all these different ones. But the very first, not just one, but two, talk about idolatry. So this is severe in God's eyes. Exodus 20, verse 3, commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In other words, do not take my infinite glory and confine it to some finite creature and say, this is God. Don't cheapen me like that. In the first commandment, he said, don't take my grand glory and bring another God before me and say, God, I can love both, right? Don't do that. So in short, the two commandments say, one, don't replace God. He needs to be your premier treasure. So don't replace him with something else as your treasure. The second one says, don't deface God's ultimate worth by lowering it to something underneath him. So don't replace God, don't deface God. Those are essentially the two commandments. If you do any of those, break any of those two commandments, you are officially an idolator. You have idols in your life that you are worshipping. So, let's, I want to clarify those two parts. I usually don't, but go ahead. <laughs> Good application, sir. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we can uh, we can talk about the details of that later. Yeah, I don't even want to go there right now. But definitely that um uh, crosses are can be God can be demeaned into the cross. See Lewis talks about that. Like he wants you to stop praying to God, start praying to an image, thinking that God is somehow inherently in that image. Whoa, don't limit God into a little box of a cross. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. So replace Commandment number one, don't replace God. Replace doesn't mean you take God out of the picture entirely and put something else there. Alright, that's dumb. Christians aren't going to do that. Replace God simply means here's God, and what it means to have God as God is He he is your supreme treasure. There is nothing in this world that would even compare to Him. When it comes to everything, if you could grab everything at your fingertips, you would say, none of that, all of God. That's what it means to have your supreme treasure being God. And to replace God would be to have him and then to take another treasure and put it alongside him and think that I'm good. Because I still love God, but I love this just as much. 
You have officially replaced God as your supreme treasure. He's now just your partial treasure. And that is idolatry. Tim Keller, if you're not familiar with him, you can start getting familiar. Really great author on the East Coast. My best friend, one of my best friends, is actually working at his church. He writes in his book called Counterfeit Gods. He says that an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if only I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I will know that I have value. Then I will feel significant and successful and secure. If only I have that, then I will be complete. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best way to describe that relationship is in the word worship. To look at anything and think that if only I can, then I'll be happy. If only I can, then I'll be complete. If only then I will finally be somebody. To look at any substance, thing, finite, temporal, created thing and have that attitude towards it is making that your supreme treasure. The Christian finds his importance, his meaning, his identity, his joy in Jesus Christ alone. Not to say you can't have good things in life, but ultimately those things don't define me. I don't need a relationship with a guy or girl to make me feel better. I feel awesome because of who Jesus says I am. I don't need to have the independence of a car to finally be happy. I'm happy because I have all of Christ. That's who he's to be, our supreme treasure. And when we replace that relationship, we officially have idolatry. So, for the Christian, idolatry often comes in the form of the idol I call and. The popular idol, even here tonight. The idol and says, I love Jesus and him. <laughs> I love Jesus and my fame, popularity, glory, whatever. I love Jesus and what people think of me. I love Jesus and what I can get out of this and that. A lot of ands going on. That's an idol. Jesus plus Nothing equals everything. And that's what the Christian treasures in him. But it's a Jesus plus vehicle, good job, beautiful hot babe, equals misery. It's true. Because what you're doing is you're taking the infinite God. Infinite means there's no limits. He is expansive and you're trying to say, I can't find happiness in that. I'm going to find it in something more defined and finite. Holy cow, if you take that and say, I can't be happy in that, and take it to this and say, now I'm happy, you will be miserable. Because nothing outside of God can ever give us more than what we already possess. I'm finite, you're finite, things are finite. So I can't gain complete joy and satisfaction, meaning in life, from finite things. It has to come from something bigger than me. And here's a newsflash. The Bible says that human beings are the crown of creation. That means we are the top of the creation chain. So there's nothing better than us but God. And if you can't find happiness in God, you will not find it in anything underneath you. That's just logic. So, to build your life on incomplete joy is idolatry. 
And John said, I write this thing, I write this whole book to you. One verse four. I'm writing this to you so that our joy may be complete. Therefore, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I want your joy maximized. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you think that's clever, I stole it from a book. <laughs> it's the title of a book I want to read soon. Alright, so that's replacing God as your supreme treasure. But what does it mean to deface God's infinite glory? That's basically to, here he is and you're cheapening him now. Not you're bringing a rival God, now you're just taking him and you're cheapening him to something like a cross, or like an animal. Or you're, you're basically, God is incomprehensible, and what man likes to do is, we can't control incomprehensible. So we try to bring it down to something that we can smell, sniff, touch, understand. Something that we can control and manipulate, and still call that God. And this is in the church. People don't like that God says two people who are not married should not live together. So they say, well, we believe that God would say that this is okay in our context. What did you just do there? You totally shaped God into what fits you. You're now controlling God. You've diminished His infiniteness. <laughs> it's craziness. Psalm 115, that's chapter 115, talks about idolatry. And um, you can look it up later. But basically what it says is that the nations mock our God because you can't see Him. And then they say, look at our gods. And this is what he describes. They say that um, our idols are silver and gold. Ooh, valuable. <laughs> the work of human hands. They have mouths, but don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They make a sound in their throat. Or they do not make a sound in their throat. In other words, they have human likeness. And they can't even do what humans do. So that's what man does. Since the beginning, man has tried... We were in the beginning created in the image of God. But since the fall, man has been trying to create God in his own image. Oh yeah, God's just like me. God's just like you. That's what Greek mythology does. The little god Zeus running around having sex with little kids and women. True story. Why? Because man wanted to make God something like himself. And when you make God something like yourself, you're excused to do whatever you want. It's all about controlling divinity. On the other hand, though, God is infinite. Ephesians 3.18 says this, Paul prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, that's the church, what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Guess what that says? I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. He's infinite. There's no limit. And He's so infinite and limitless that there's, there's breadth, width, height, and depth that's beyond comprehension. And I want all of that to fit inside of you. That's when you'll be content and satisfied. When Solomon was building the temple, he said that, look, this house needs to be great because our God's greater than all other gods. And the heavens cannot even contain Him. So why on earth would we take this and put it into something we can manage. That's idolatry. So, idolatry is essentially a boundary of humanity that limits God's supremacy. Idolatry is a boundary. It's human bounds that come, God's supreme, and it comes and it binds him. In other words, basically, idolatry is such a small view of God that man gets to create him. 
and that God can no longer satisfy him. Limitations. And even when it's just in an image, let's say that your idol right now is lust. Lust only goes so far in life. It has limits. And your God, the way that you can worship God will never exceed those limits. You are completely confining yourself to misery. And it's so ironic that idolatry promises liberty, but all it delivers is misery. Because it has limits. But in Jesus Christ, free because he's infinite. There's absolutely no limits. So, idolatry is the limiting of God. And consequently, the limiting of God limits us. I think the reason John chose to end this letter with the phrase, little children, keep yourselves from idols, is because he understood that if we have idols, it will limit my love for God and my love for others. And those are the two conditions necessary for eternal life, that I'm loving God and others. I'm going to touch on the main points of the book we've seen so far and show that um, idolatry tries to limit us there. So, idolatry limits our love for God. This is what the book has said so far. You love God by walking in the light. That's what idolatry says. You can't walk in the light. You don't need to confess sins. You didn't sin against anything because you said it's not a sin. We love God by keeping God's commandments. But idolatry says you don't need to keep God's commandments. We love God by hating the world. But idolatry limits our ability to hate the world. In fact, idolatry is the world. We love God by abiding in the church. But idolatry goes outside of the boundaries of the church. We love God by imitating God's righteousness. But idolatry keeps us from imitating God's righteousness. It makes us imitate our passions instead. In fact, Psalm 115 says that those who worship idols become like those idols. Dumb, mute, deaf, and blind. (laughs) Idolatry limits our love for others. John has said there's three ways to love others. Number one, sacrificial generosity for others. Um... Protecting believers from false philosophies by believing the truth. And thirdly, by perfecting God's love through us to extend to other people. Idolatry does not let you do any of that because your love for others is limited. Your love is constrained to your idol. Only when your love is put in an infinite being can your love infinitely go and pour forth to other people. Follow this quote. It's from John Bright. It's a book I just, I've been actually reading right now for our next series called The Kingdom of God. He says this about idolatry. Because Israel, in the past, in the Old Testament, they failed to love God with all their heart, so they fell into idolatry. When they fell into idolatry, you know what happened next? They failed to love others. And this is how he says it. The worship of Baal, that was the God, the idol back in the Old Testament, was a religion which summoned men not at all beyond their human nature. I'm sorry, their animal nature. So, um, idolatry never summoned man to be more than their animal nature. And it posed no moral demands, but rather it provided men with an eternal ritual designed to appease the deity and to manipulate the divine powers for their own material ends. They're manipulating God through an idol so that they can have prosperity. 
which was incapable of creating a community, but rather by pandering to your own selfish desires of the worshiper, it destroyed all real community. See what happens? Idolatry feeds self and selfishness. And you cannot extend your love to other people if you're worshiping idols. So idolatry completely destroys any hope of community and it makes us all a bunch of individuals. Does this sound like the West? Like America? Our idolatry is prosperity and we're all a bunch of individuals. You know, the church needs to put their supreme treasure in Christ and we have community. We can love Him. We can love others. So idolatry limits our love for God, our love for others. Therefore, it limits our assurance of eternal life. You don't even know for sure if you have it. Alright, let's conclude now with looking at keeping ourselves from idols. How do we do this? I know that the command there in 1 John 5.21, little children, keep yourselves from idols, seems completely random. Just like all of a sudden, alright, slam the book down. Woo! Thank God Graham was able to explain that a little bit. But I think it's connected to the previous verses more than we think. Alright, if you look at the beginning of verse 18, 19, and 20, do you see a trend there? Look at 18. We know, verse 19, we know, and verse 20, and we know. <laughs> Three times John says, we know, we know, we know. Why does he say we know, we know, we know? Does he understand that if we know the true God intimately, we will never have a knowledge of idolatry. Say that again. If we know the true God intimately, we will never know the knowledge of idolatry. If you know the true God in His infiniteness, you will never limit that. You'll never replace that. You'll treasure it. You'll love it. You'll be obsessed with it. So, the three ways. Verse 18. Know that in Jesus we have security from idolatry. Verse 18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. That's Jesus. He was born of God. He protects us. And the evil one, the devil, does not touch him. So in other words, know that in Jesus, we have security from idolatry. The devil can't grab us and throw us into it. Jesus will preserve you. He says, know that. And if you know that, then believe it. Trust Jesus to keep you from idolatry. In other words, treasure him. The reason Israel went into idolatry, 2 Kings 17 says, is because they did not believe God. So believe Jesus. He will be your security from idolatry. Number two, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In other words, know that in God we have liberty from idolatry. The world, he says, is in the power of the evil one. So idolatry is under the power. They're all in the power of idolatry. But in God we have liberty from that. Because He set us free from the world. Idols block God's blessings, His riches, and his, his, his blessings, His riches, and His fullness from reaching my heart. Idols stand in the way of that and they absorb it and I never get it. Aesop in the fables tells the story of a man who is worshipping an idol 
and he was praying to the idol every his little wooden statue. He's praying to it every day that would make him rich, that would give him some money. Every day, I need money, I need money. And finally, one day he got so mad at the idol because it wasn't giving him money that he grabbed it and he threw it against the wall as hard as he could. And the thing burst and out of the idol came hundreds of gold coins. That's Aesop's fable. And I saw that and thought, whew, that's God. Like, we're praying, God, I want to be satisfied. I want happiness. I want joy in life. I want meaning. And we have these idols and he's trying to give it to us but the idol's absorbing it and we're never getting it. And God says, take the idol and throw its head off at the wall and then the blessings will flow down to you. You'll have that meaning, that happiness, and that joy. So, um, God, in God we have liberty from idolatry. Number three, and finally, verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. See how many times the word true popped up? Three times. True, true, true. What's John's point? Jesus came to earth to tell us that God is the true reality, not idolatry. God is the true reality. So, if God is the true reality, then what we need to understand is idols are attractive, okay? Don't lie about that. They are. Because they appeal to the senses. You can hear it, you can see it, smell it, taste it, touch it. I mean, depending on what it is, of course. But we can, it's, it's, it works for humanity. It's manipulative. But next time you're jumping to think that because I can see it, feel it, touch it, it must be real. <laughs> remember, that was kind of Remember that it was in Eden that Satan manipulated Eve through her senses. She saw the fruit, she reached and touched the fruit, she tasted the fruit, she heard the word from the serpent. All the senses were engaged. And they fell. So, senses don't guarantee reality. But Jesus coming to testify that God is true, that's reality. So, in closing, idolatry limits the supremacy of God. Consequently, idolatry will limit our love for God and others which will limit our assurance of eternal life. So we have assurance of eternal life if we keep ourselves from idols. Because then we'll be able to love God and love others. So, finally, if we know the true God intimately, you will not know idolatry. So know, know, know your God and love Him. So to close First John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Smash them. They are not worth it. Renew your confidence and trust in Jesus Christ. That Him plus nothing is everything. And we don't need that little and. Smash it like a little ant. Father, we are thankful for your goodness, your infiniteness. There's no limits to you. You're full and abundant and you give all of yourself to us. That's what your word tells us. But experience is often contrary, Father. And we've learned that it's not you who's falling short to meet your promises. We're falling short to experience your promises. Because God, frankly, we don't treasure you supremely like we ought. 
I pray that every idol in this room would be used for firewood. God, that, it, that, that would warm our hearts and rekindle the fire for a passion for your name. God, we want assurance of eternal life. We want to love you limitlessly. We want to love others limitlessly. So please keep us from idols. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.